0: This episode is made possible by our generous patrons.
1: to episode 131 of the ink to film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie i'm luke and i'm james and this week we discuss the final third of J.R.R. tolkien's 1955 novel the return of the king All right, James, I have a 45-question fill-in-the-blank survey and uh, questionnaire for you
0: about the appendices that we have covered. I hope you came prepared and you did all your studying. It really did kind of feel like I was cramming for a test and like (laughs) trying to remember names and dates and all these things. Uh, I'm going to need to know the third king of Numenor. (laughs) Uh, I don't know. (laughs) I need to know the exact lineage of father, grandfather, and great-grandfather of Theoden right now. Go. (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: no, yeah. I mean that that was pretty fun uh, getting to those parts. Um, some of it very interesting, some of it very dry. Um, it seems like it, it's definitely uh, there for the people who want to go really deep. Um, and I've discovered through reading that that I am not one of those people. Um, some of it was cu- some of it was interesting. I'm I'm kind of glad I, I read through it. I didn't necessarily, you know absorb all of it i sort of skimmed through it Mm -hmm. um stopping at sections that interested me more um and that's all i really needed out of it so if you were ever curious like what was in the appendices at the end of the book wondering if you should check them out i I think skim through them look for interesting stuff Mm -hmm. um there is a bit of backstory there's a bit of there's a couple sentences here and there that indicate like what happened after the events of the novels which are kind of cool we'll get into um but for the most part unless you're someone who really wants to dive deep. I, I don't know. I think you can you can skim.
0: Yeah, I, I skimmed. So I skimmed some of it. I skimmed, My book had um, the first three parts were the ones that I read all the way through, and then f- from there, they're sort of like your family trees and your um, your pronunciations and things like that. The reasons why things are pronounced certain ways and why pr- like translating them into modern day English is hard from Elvish and things like that. Um, that's the stuff I skimmed through. Uh, I. I found myself to be really, pretty much engaged all the way through the three parts. Um, I guess there's it does get bogged down sometimes when it's kind of sort of just listing kings and who their son was and why they, why they, you know, had their names that they had because of certain battles or deeds that they did. Mm-hmm. But I think everything that kind of in in any way shapes the world um, of specifically this story of the Lord of the Rings, sort of the third age, the end of the third age here, um, specifically everything to do with like sort of the First Age and sort of the Valar and like why Sauron is the way he is and Morgoth and all of this stuff that you don't like, that's just like added context that I think lead like you, you start to understand people's powers. You start to understand Gandalf a little more, I think. Um And you understand like why there maybe is a kind of guiding forces that are helping along the fellowship. Um That stuff I find to be really interesting. The King's lineage and things like that, maybe, maybe less so okay fair enough uh we'll get we'll touch on that here at the end of the episode
1: um spend a little bit of time on it but not too much um but before we get to all that and before we even get into our summary um this is our final episode on the lord of the rings trilogy uh the books obviously we are going to do the massive movie next week um which i'm looking forward to i'm I'm even thinking about watching all three films um you know in preparation i was also thinking that yeah yeah Yeah, we'll, we'll see um if i have the time but I mean, what else? I, maybe I will. Um, <laughs> but but this is this is going to put the cap on our book coverage. And I, I want to save a little bit of wrapping up for the very end once we've discussed it all. Um, but just here at the top, like any any general thoughts or any, any, any sort of observations you want to make about the process of reading all of these books um, and, and coming to end uh, with the trilogy here and now where we're at
0: with life and, you know, the state of the country and everything else going on right now in the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, these stories have meant so much to me growing up and over the years and and just overall shaped Definitely like what what sorts of fantasy I'm into and just in general stories that I that I engage with and this Ending is is so it feels because we're maybe it's because we're doing it for the podcast It feels very final for the book. Hmm. It feels like closing a book on Tolkien's like masterpiece like closing a chapter and like we still have the Hobbit to dive into, which which will be so much fun. And uh, you know we have other we have the movie episode coming out, which like you know Peter Jackson's trilogy is is like for my money is kind of, I mean as influential as as anything that Tolkien did for me. You know what I mean? Like in terms of filmmaking and the things that he did to like I mean it just changed blockbuster cinema forever and and even just like fantasy and and like you know fantasy wouldn't be the same today without it without that adaptation mm-hmm. I I mean it just this for whatever reason this feels really final right now with Tolkien and and having just uh watched the biopic which we'll be talking about as our bonus episode this month we're going to have two bonus episodes but the first one's going to be about the biopic Tolkien Uh, Mm -hmm. having just watched that and kind of Tolkien, Tolkien. yeah, it's a habit. I'm always going to call him Tolkien, but it is, I know I I can't break myself of it. It is Tolkien. Yeah. But just so having, having just watched that, I think just knowing that he, his love for language, maybe even, you know, surpasses his love of this middle earth that he created and everything like that. And this was sort of a vessel for those languages, um, Mm -hmm. kind of blows my mind and like the history that he created and and it's just like it'll it never will be done again this nobody will ever I, I in my opinion maybe you know maybe people will strive for it but i guess it can never be done for the first time again sort of creating this this language this world with so, everything that he did was was in some way in service to this world and you know you have your george r. r martins and you have your jk rowlings and you have who have like massive fantasy worlds that you feel like you could explore forever um but something about something about Tolkien and the way that he does middle earth is just i don't know it's it's because it comes from a place of rather than story i think it comes from a place of language and that sort of shapes the world it's kind of unique even today
1: i agree that it's unique yeah i mean i, I guess when you when you say it won't be done again it hasn't been you know like that i'm a little bit like i don't know about that but if you're trying to say that done in this way i definitely agree because Tolkien was a philologist and he brought his particular academic studies to bear in creating this world and he was particularly good at certain things and uh, that influenced the way he crafted this mythology and history into his work and uh, yeah I mean he was definitely one of the first to do it and I I was thinking about how reading through the appendices I was like, I wonder how much this inspired someone like Martin to put out uh, A World of Ice and Fire, which is this massive book containing all of the backstories and histories. Like, it's like, and so like you said, Rowling, like so many different uh, famous fantasy writers and um, feel like they have to just create this massive mythos and world building. And that, that's such, that's so baked into fantasy now. And I do think a lot of that comes from Tolkien, like his shadow. Like if you want to be a, you know, quote unquote, real fantasy writer, you have to invent all this stuff for your world. And just has to be fully realized and fleshed out and lived in and, you know, going back hundreds of years. And I think that uh, expectation, a lot of that comes from this. Cause that's something that it seems like Tolkien really delighted in. Um But yeah, I mean, I think it's being done. I think I see modern writers doing it. They're just doing it in their own ways, and Mm -hmm. they're doing it in ways that play to their strengths.
0: Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's not to discount anything anybody's doing currently. Um, I think it's just the fact that he did it. Kind of, you know, I'm sure people did it before him, but the the fact that he did it first and set this set this standard, sort of like you're like you're talking about, which is just kind of no one can set that standard again. Someone could set a new standard and like sort of create a new trend of popularity like he has. But yeah I mean it's just to to have read it and like to understand the stories as I do now and have you know have it be like a sort of familiar story and yet be able to dig into it more and more. Um, I really enjoyed reading Return of the King again. There's some fun stuff that that isn't in the the films that I think is interesting to think about, um, especially when put up against sort of the fact that Tolkien doesn't dislikes allegory we've talked about it multiple times, and the fact mm-hmm. that the biopic kind of leaned into the allegory so like <laughs> yeah it really did you know like but then there's, there's something here in, in at the end of Return of the King that you're like okay so this kind of could again ring true for something that's that's allegory to uh, Tolkien's experiences and I think that brings to light again the nature of like I think an author has to write from a certain perspective you you write what you know sometimes you know what I mean I'm not saying that they're locked into that but they're influenced by it so like the fact that you know, people draw allegory to things that he went through. I think is just a natural thing that's going to happen. And I know he disliked it, but I, I think he disliked it for the fact that people were potentially using it to discount sort of his artistic licensing and sort of like the things, that, the 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 effort that he right. put into it.
1: And we, we we've hit on that a lot, I think, in, in this discussion. Um, so I don't want to linger on it too much. But I, you know, I agree with you, and and I I definitely was drawn to to making some comparisons throughout the end of this, which we can touch on as we go. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up is, I never read this book, right? like I, I mentioned before this is the one that I definitely never because I never finished two towers. um so so now I have completed the the entire series, and I can look at it and see it for you know the entirety of it. And uh, it's given me an interesting perspective on this as a series. and um, It's also interesting to compare it to the films that come out later and and the way that it sort of reignited the Lord of the Rings mania that was going on in the 70s and 80s um, and and 90s, too. Um, And I'm not saying it had completely died out, but you can't think that Peter Jackson's trilogy didn't all of a sudden explode Lord of the Rings mania again. It definitely did. Um, And it has sort of made this series can have even longer legs than it would have had already. Um, But it is interesting to look back at the series, regardless of the of the films, as being so so landmark, so influential. You know, you have Terry Brooks, you have you have um, you have Michael Moorcock, which came out and he wrote this essay um, basically trashing Lord of the Rings. Um, And I read I read that earlier because, you know, I wanted to have some like opposing viewpoints and. And, you know, you have Martin, who I've already talked about, who I feel like is writing sort of in dialogue with, with Tolkien. And um, it's just like, it's everywhere. And um, I feel like it is a valuable piece to have read for me as someone who occasionally writes fantasy. And um, I think it's useful to see the historical perspective of it. And and much like when we covered um, Princess of Mars and how influential that was in, in science fiction, um I, I feel like this was also interesting in an academic way of going back and seeing the history mm-hmm. of fantasy in and, and a series that is clearly monumental and very important.
0: I have, um, a, I have a question for you just because I feel like within the con- within sort of how you're talking about it, um, do you think that the legend of Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and specifically Return of the King because you hadn't read it, do you think it lives up to sort of what... Your your, sort of how you how you remember it and how you think about it did it live up to the text itself or do you think it's being propped up by sort of all of the mythos and the whole the whole story and the movies and sort of like Mm. like you said tolkien mania like lord of the rings mania
1: yeah you know i think that actually would be something interesting to touch back on at the end of this episode um i want to i want to get through this because often when i discuss things in depth with you it helps me sort of crystallize my views on things I um, mean, I want to give myself an opportunity to have that discussion first, and then by the end of the episode, I want to touch on that. Like, where do I think this fits as far as like my expectation and what it what it delivered, and and how I felt about the series as a whole. Um, I think that's an ongoing conversation we'll have into next week too. But in particular for the books, I think that would be a nice way to end end our coverage of the of the books. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: definitely. Okay, so since I'm I'm punting that till later on. Do we want to touch on have you have you put any thought on the role of Gollum before we get into the the summary of these final sections? I know that's something we talked about last week. Um, we had someone write in talking about how basically um, it, it was basically kind of echoing some things we kind of said, where it was like Gollum is is evil to Frodo's good, um, and he is sort of the corrupted versus the the purer and the uncorrupted, um, or the someone who gives in right versus right. someone who fights back. Um I think those waters are a little muddier than that but um that that was some of the feedback we got and I know that's something that that I resisted fully answering last time mm-hmm. um especially
0: trying to make allegory or any sort of comparison to the other thing is that something you've thought about at all I I mean I was racking my brain trying to think about what what he meant to the story as well um and something else that came to me is just like this idea of this is more of a surface level obviously interpretation of it but and it's clearly there but like Gollum, is, Gollum is an example of specifically Smeagol finding the ring and having to bear it alone. Um, whereas I think like the story of Frodo, as we talked about last week, and the story of Sam, and sort of the Fellowship as a whole, is that there couldn't have been only one ring bearer to completely sort of push back against this evil. So it took mm-hmm. it took more than just more than just one person or one thing. It took like the coming together of all races of men and all everybody. Um, So yeah, I mean, other than that additional thing that I hadn't really thought about, just like this idea of he is the lone bearer of this ring for, you know, I think like 100 years or 100, I think it's a very long time, I can't remember off the top of my head how long it is, but just to battle with it alone um, makes him a character who, you know, like understandably became as insane and, and like, as crazy and sort of like, Obsessed, obsessed. Yeah. So like like if if Frodo's by himself for a couple hundred years, I have no doubt that he would probably end up something like Smeagol and Gollum. Sure.
1: Well, and and so I think that comes around to something I kept seeing coming up in this in this story. um, And that was sort of the strength inherent in mercy. And uh, we see it kind of come up again and again. And I think he's one of the key feature, you know, figures of that because it's mercy over and over again that stays sam's hand and makes frodo not kill him makes gandalf not kill him and it turns out in the end that that was the right decision right Mm -hmm. and that's one of the reasons that the ring is able to be destroyed is because of mercy um we see this echoed again later on in this book with um saruman and some of the some of the mercy that's getting shown to him now you can argue whether or not it was the right thing to do or not but it seems to me that the store the 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 Tolkien's trilogy is repeatedly telling us it is a sign of strength to be able to show mercy to your enemies or show mercy to those who are um, maybe misguided. Um, And I think that's one of the things that that the series is trying to say. I don't know that I always agree with it in every situation. That's something I think we can talk about. I also think that sometimes it's presented in a way that that is like if you if you are merciful, then the divine will sort of take up your yeah. cause
0: because it feels like that's why it works. Right, it feels idealistic. It feels like you're yeah. like you know if you inherently like we talk, like I talked about last week, sort of the, the idea that Tolkien, after everything he's been through, still believes in like the the genuine good natured um, like goodness of the world. If you mm-hmm. if you look at it through that lens, then yeah, mercy mercy wins out. Um, but I think that you you know, not only do you run into a situation where you could be taken advantage of all of these things in in sort of a real world sense, but I think overall, mm. it's a great message. I think, I think in yeah. general, yes, mercy, mercy does show courage. It takes courage to be merciful, I would say. So in the, in the, the risk of getting a little sidetracked,
1: um, Michael Moorcock's essay, um, about, uh, the, the, someone brought to my attention, um, it was last night at a, at a writing i was right in i was i was virtually attending um it's called epic poo mm-hmm. and it is um p-o-o-h as if as in winnie the pooh right and in it he compares tolkien to essentially fantasies like adult fantasies version of winnie the pooh um and he you know moorcock is he's sort of a political anarchist um, he reminds me a little bit of Alan Moore in a way. like he 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 seems like he I, I mean, now I'm not at all like a Moorcock expert, so people might bristle at that description. I you know, I, I fully recognize that. but um from what I was reading, he really doesn't like how sort of he he finds Lord of the Rings like childish and sort of reductive and designed to be comforting and to not challenge you and to reinforce existing sort of conservative values. Mm-hmm. um and, I, he did it in a way that the essay is sort of pot stirring in a way. It, it seems like it's deliberately trying to, you know, stir up, you know, anger and, and get attention. Um, but he's not completely wrong either. Um, like there were some good points being made in there. Um, and it also, I, th- I think that both types of literature can exist. And I right. think that we can have comforting, Fantasy that doesn't challenge us and makes us feel better about the world, which is definitely what I think this book largely does um, in this series. Um, and then there there can be completely subversive writing that that challenges everything you think you know and and you know forces you to be uncomfortable. Um, and there's a time and a place for that. Um, I don't know that I'm comfortable saying that one is inherently better than the other. I think a lot of it comes down to like your taste and what you want, and also it can vary. Um, but um, I guess I'm trying to say that I am. Um, I understand that point of view, and I know that there are a lot of people out there who don't like Tolkien, and I think that's part of it. I think that they look at it as as sort of a conservative bastion of fantasy, um, and they see it as a something that props up the patriarchy, that that perpetrates this idea of like wise old men who are going to save the day and who we should look to in times of strife. And there's a lot of troubling things in here um, or things that don't jive with me politically. Um, But I also am able to find comfort and to enjoy reading it and to be comforted in a time which uh, reading a comforting story is nice. And I think there's value in that. So I guess I I haven't decided where I'm at other than to say that I am. I'm pretty sure I am not a ultra Lord of the Rings fanboy after Mm -hmm. finishing this series. However, I do. I did enjoy reading
0: it and I do respect it greatly right for what it is so tons of stuff to talk about here um because you just said it i think the idea of being like an ultra fanboy can be almost dangerous to to the source material itself because like life is about diversity it's about it's about having different kinds of stories and like from somebody like this author that you were just telling me about uh it seems to me very closed off like it seems to me if you if you can't approach a story and understand that it's going to be from a certain perspective that doesn't Completely fit within the parameters that you set as good material then I see that as somebody being somewhat Like I said closed off or maybe ignorant toward to to just to just completely say that something because it does because it's so You know because it's childish or idealistic or, or so or sort of like simple Um doesn't make it bad and I think that's something that we're seeing a lot today people seeing things that are broadly appealing as blanket bad Like things that are Mm -hmm. things that are broadly things that that anyone can understand as bad. Um, And I just think that's inherently not true. Um, I, I mean, and again, maybe it comes down to taste. Maybe there are people who do say think that the only thing that's good is something that subverts expectations. But I think subverting expectations are made that much better when there are expectations to be set. So if there's a if there's an idealistic story like this, when you go into make your version of it of some sort of like completely different twisted gruesome dark and like you know completely bleak ending it's going to make it that much more powerful so sort of like having both is this nice balance so i I don't know i I bristle at sort of the idea that that just because it's like sort of more simplified or, or broadly appealing makes it makes it bad but i also do acknowledge the fact that like if you're talking about sort of propping up patriarchy you know a lot of the things that you just talked about clearly it's it's a book from the 50s and and it is it is guilty of that Um, and, and it's not to say that like, this should be like the, the best fantasy novel of all time. And, you know, I see it as one of them, but it's, I'm definitely not closed off enough as like a fanboy to say like, there will never be anything better because I think Mm -hmm. like that to think that way is, is cynical in itself to say like, this is the best thing that there will ever, there will ever be. And nothing will ever be better than it is just, Mm -hmm. I don't know, again, closed off, like then you're, you're not open to new experiences. So I think there's a balance in the middle somewhere.
1: Yeah, I mean the essay. Honestly, I want to read it again. Um, I, I, there was a lot of references to other books. Um, he talks about C.S. Lewis and other other writers who've been propped up over time. Um, he obviously he has a vested interest. He's a fantasy writer himself, and he's and he's sort of trying to differentiate himself from these others. Um, I, honestly, I think that could be like a bonus episode. Would be just so like just read this essay, um, have you read it beforehand, and actually talk about it. Because on one hand, I also feel like I'm maybe misrepresenting what was said a little bit. Okay. You know what I mean? Not giving it the nuance, not giving it the back, the backing that he had. um right. There was a few things in there that I would love to also sort of react to that I disagreed with. There were a few things I agreed with, but I'm realizing that getting into it really would take a, a lot yeah. more time than I want to devote to it in this episode. Yeah. Um. So maybe that's something we'll revisit in a future bonus episode. Probably not this month, but somewhere down the line, we could touch on it if we wanted to. If that sounds interesting to people. I will link the essay in the show notes. Again, I'm not saying I endorse this viewpoint, but I'll link it in there since we talked about it, and if you guys want to check it out, read it for yourself. Um, If you're a big Lord of the Rings lover, it may anger you. Um, If you have doubts, maybe you'll see some of them represented there. Um, But let's get into the summary here before we uh, dally too long. Uh, We left off on chapter four, which is called The Field of Cormelon. The story returns to The Field of Cormelon, continuing from book five, chapter 10. The eagles arrive, and the captains of the West are victorious. Frodo and Sam are rescued by Gandalf, and all the company meets again in Athelion. So, again, we're, we're kind of going back to the to the armies of men here. We we see them victorious. We see uh, the eagles come down. Uh, Guahir and Gandalf uh, rides on this Guahir, and they go and they rescue Frodo and Sam um, from Mount Doom. So, yeah,
0: what did you think of this chapter? I think it's really cool to see the perspective of Aragorn, Gandalf, the armies that are that are trying to, you know, fight against Mordor that's around them on all sides. Um seeing like the impact of the moment that they dropped the, the that the ring fell into the the fires of Mordor, um to see the reaction and sort of know like a blow has been struck is something that I think uh Tolkien has done a good job job of like sort of drawing parallels to what's going on in different stories. like I, th- I think in the last section that we read, part two of our coverage, um, Sam was reacting to sort of like realizing that like a blow was struck to Sauron when the- when the witch king was killed by Marion and, and um, Eowyn. And so like to see it happen again to see it from from the army's perspective was cool. You know, I think I think Aragorn start they they they, they he leads the army in and they start fighting and then and then Gandalf takes off on those eagles pretty quickly cuz the eagles are coming the eagles are coming the famous line is being shouted yep. like as soon as the chapter starts I believe. You know, it's been said a million times but these eagles I I was I thought during this reading I was thinking like how I would appreciate the eagles more if we, if we sort of like visited their home territory in some way more. And I know, yeah. I, I think maybe some of that's hit on in the Hobbit, um, but like sort of like seeing their culture and understanding them as a species rather than just like this sort of, Swoop in, save the day thing that happens twice in in the I, course of. Are you, are you talking about the book of The Hobbit or the films? Because I don't remember much more in the book about it either. They just kind of show up, I think. Too maybe there's a little more description in there. I haven't read it in a while, but <laughs> yeah, it's been it's been too long for me to remember w- what's in The Hobbit as far as them. But um, I was just thinking, like uh, if I think if set up and and that I think that's going to come to play a part because the reason the appendices are so long. Because there's so much more that Tolkien wanted to tell, but I think he, in, in order for the narrative to flow as he wanted it to, you know, a lot of the details are left out, and maybe there's a section on the eagle culture, but we didn't get it, so it, it does tend to feel like they just swoop in to save the day twice. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know,
1: one of the one of the famous criticisms of this is like, why didn't they do it from the beginning? Why didn't they just fly the eagles to Mordor? Um, and then there's been counter-arguments about the Nazgul and and. Lots of stuff like that. You know, is it a plot hole? Is it not a plot hole? I don't know if the eye is still there and Sauron still got all of his power. Can he magically resist the Eagles from entering and getting to where they need to go? You know, who knows? Um, But yeah, I mean, it's something that I I guess uh, I'm I'm struggling with this a little bit for this series and that it's it feels like. Every angle has been discussed, <laughs> so yeah. you know what I mean. Like, I I, I want to touch on things that are that are popular and a lot of people have talked about. But on the other hand, it's like I don't know what else to add to that discussion other than to say that I don't know the answer to it. I don't <laughs> think anybody does. You know what I mean? And let's move on,
0: <laughs> right? All we can give is our our sort of judge like our sort of perspective on it, and like whether you know whether we think something is one way or the other. You know, I I like I say, teach their own. If you think the Eagles could or could not have made it to to Mordor with the ring in the first place, and as a plot hole, like, cool.
1: Yeah, I feel like this is a pretty straightforward section here. Um, you know, it's a rescue, and we're entering into uh, you know, a, a series of chapters that are like. Individual endings of different arcs, and we see characters being reunited. we see we get catching up with like certain characters who've been off you know screen for a little while and finding out what they do here. Um it is interesting to me that there this the the real climax of this series really does happen in the previous chapter, and then we get some wrapping up for a while here, followed by another like final small ending which we'll get to. Um and, 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 and this is sort of beginning the wrapping up of things.
0: Yeah, and people wonder why Peter Jackson has so many endings in his in his like Return of the King film, but I think it's because there's so many endings to the story in general. Yeah. You know, we have like the overarching climax that's that's kind of come to an end, and then we're gonna get like sort of each individual character's endings on their own as we go. Mm-hmm. Chapter five is called The Steward and the King. In Minas Tirith at the Houses
1: of Healing, after the armies have departed Eowyn is taken to see Faramir. Later, they see the arrival of the armies with Aragorn, Gandalf, and the four hobbits. Gandalf crowns Aragorn king of Gondor, and Aragorn makes Faramir prince of Athelion and keeps the office of steward. Gandalf takes Aragorn to Mount Mendulian to survey the lands of his kingdom. On Midsummer's Eve, Elrond, Galadriel, Arwen, and the elves arrive in the city from the north to attend the wedding of Aragorn and Arwen. Okay, so a lot happens here again. We're we're getting a lot of movement, some political stuff here with uh, Aragorn and and Faramir. But I, I think one of the more interesting developments is uh, the romance of Eowyn and Faramir uh, really blossoms in this chapter out of the blue. And, and to me, it felt very natural. It felt like these are characters that make sense that they would find sort of um, common ground. And I also love that Eowyn didn't immediately just sort of give in to Faramir's... Uh, uh, you know, flirtations.
0: Yeah, she, it's interesting because like she's sort of still pining over Aragorn, so like looking out to the distance and hoping he'll come back and all mm-hmm. of this. And it seems like as they, and they're you know they're looking out to the darkness and eventually the darkness breaks and we see and we get a message from someone that like you know Aragorn and everybody have victory against Sauron and in the middle and uh, the Mordor. And that's sort of when their romance they re, like they solidify their romance then. You know, we don't get that much of a perspective of women in Middle-earth, and so to see more of Eowyn, and uh, I love, I think in the, it's in the appendices, they, they talk about how she's like Eowyn shield arm or something like that. Like, she's she's known as like Eowyn shield Shield arm, something like yeah. that. Uh, yeah, because of on. the the blow she took from the Witch King. Um, so it's just cool to know that she's like a legendary figure within the, like the Roharim. We also get Aragorn sort of um, making Faramir forever a steward of Gondor like his whole lineage and everything yeah. will forever be the stewards and I I thought that's really cool because it, it makes it so that he still has this place of of stature for his lineage for Boromir and Denethor
1: yeah and you know it's interesting how she can't bring herself to love Faramir until she has this moment of epiphany where she decides she is not going to be a shield maiden anymore and that she's going to become a healer and when she makes this decision to change, now all of a sudden she's able to find appreciation for for, for Faramir and love for Faramir. What do you think that's trying to say?
0: I feel like it kind of is is sort of like leaning into gender stereotypes a little bit. It seems mm-hmm. like she she's maybe like you know become a woman as as you know the patriarchy is set up, um, and and then we'll be married. But I, at the same time, I think it might be have something to do with um, you know going to battle and like having your mind on battle and war and things like that. Um, and after a war, after something like this, sort of reverting back to like a normal life and, and sort of realizing that like the time for love is here and like time to like sort of help others and, and becoming a healer, I think is like the opposite of, of being someone who's, you know, a shield bearer trying to, trying to hurt someone. So I I would think at least. And if I'm being gracious with
1: it, um, which I tend to want to do, um I think it also shows how her love of Aragorn was sort of bound up in her aspirations of being a great warrior. And when she lets go of that, it's interesting to me that she is no longer pining after Aragorn and is able to see Faramir, right? Like it's it it shows me that maybe her love of Aragorn was conflated with her desire to be a warrior and maybe that's what he represented to her. Um, so if I'm being gracious, I see that, but I, I also definitely recognize that there may be some patriarchy stuff going on there too. So, you know, who knows, but I just thought it was interesting to look at. I do want to quote something here that I, there was a pr- particular exchange that I really loved. So Awen's having this discussion with the warden who is sort of in charge of her keeping her confined to her rooms and healing. And she's sort of having this sort of philosophical debate with him. And he says, the world is full enough of hurts and mischances without wars to multiply them. And she says, It needs but one foe to breed a war, not two, Master Warden. And those who have not swords can still die upon them. Which I thought was a was a profound sort of back and forth. Like I I I tend to agree with the warden, right? Like that that wars um are on the whole and large quite terrible and lead to a lot of suffering and death and that life is hard enough without them. Um but I think her response is an interesting one and then one that's worth worth note as well and that it you can be as peaceful and 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 um not you know anti-war as you want but if it if one if somebody comes along who is not that they can still wage war upon you whether or not you uh, you believe in it. You know what I mean? It right. only takes one. And in that sense, uh, like she says, if you don't have a sword, you can still die on one. Um, And you can talk about guns, you can talk about weapons and that too. And I'm not saying that that is the perfect worldview to have either. Um, And I think there's more to that discussion. But I I do think it is an interesting debate and one that is still going on. um, And I don't know, it just I kind of was, you know, arrested by by this back and forth. And I kind of stopped and thought about it and like, how do I feel about this? And. I like to, I like to to sort of broaden it out and look at it from a societal point of view right like there's a reason that countries have armies and have defense budgets and stuff like right. that um but that thinking can also go I think get out of hand right um and you can preemptively go go a little bit nuts
0: with your with your your spending and the size of your weapon that you want to have and you know a lot of it has to do with just deterrence too it's like yeah you know i have this massive army so that no one uh, like attacks me and so like having this sword means that no one will come after me because i have a sword and like where does it end where does it start
1: and i think it's telling that Aowen herself decides to put down her weapons and become a healer Right, Even after sort of having this discussion. Um, So I don't know. I I don't know the answer to this. I just thought it was an interesting... uh, It's an interesting debate to have, and it's something that that, um, I think is a question that goes on. So Faramir, um, like you said, he's sort of named as the Warden um, in perpetuity and in service of of Aragorn. Um, And we hear talk about how the tree... uh, that the tree uh, of Gondor, like, b- you know, blooms again and grows again and that the city itself um, gets mithril gates that the you know, dwarves come in and install and how it's filled with trees from the elves. And um, over time, it seems like it really prospers. Um, I do like there's a moment where Baragond is taken before the king and he's told that he's going to have to leave the guard because he, vi- he violated his oath and slew his kinsmen on, you know, like, hallowed ground. And he's all like, oh, shit. And he says, like, you, you know, usually, usually, you know, this action, you know, you'd be condemned to death for doing it. But, yeah, he says, um, but you did it out of love for Faramir. And so I'm, as said, appointing you as the captain of his white guard. And, and like, he's all like, oh, yay. And he sees that it was a fair and just thing. And all is well with Baragond. And I felt like this was the most Game of Thrones shit. I was like, this is the kind of thing that I could see a George R. R. Martin reading and going, there could be so much more to this. Because how how much does this sound a little bit like Jamie Lannister? You know what I mean? Like, there's there is some there's some just shades of gray here. All you have to do is say that one of the guys he slew is was the son of a really important political figure in the city. And that guy is like uh, no, fuck that. He killed my son, and he's not allowed to do that according to the you know the the tenets of his order. I demand he's executed, or I demand he's exiled. And then now all of a sudden you have a political struggle, and you have a king who maybe has to rely on this guy for some reason. So he can't just say no. He did it for love, so it's fine. You know what I mean? Like, there's so much in here you could get into, and I just I just right. love the idea of people reading this and going, well maybe maybe it could be more complicated than that, and that would be interesting too. Right, and
0: that that's Game of Thrones, like on its nose, right there. Like that's that's what that story is, and that's something that people point to with Tolkien, and I I, I agree with is like sort of, he's very detail oriented, but at the same time, where it's it's so much more about like everything going on that like we can't be you know he wouldn't have been able to get the story told if he was worried about all of the little the, the smaller things like that sort of yeah. the sort of political viings and stuff, but that's why things like Game of Thrones exist, like you like you said, and and that's why you know tastes are different for different people but yeah i do like that this is sort of like the idea that maybe this could have spawned a moment where george r, r. martin as a kid read this and was like here we go <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah exactly like what if well because he talks a lot about how reading reading i think some of the appendices and stuff and even these these winding up chapters i've heard him talk about he had this question of like what happens to all the orcs there's just thousands and thousands of orcs and like we hear a little bit about it but he's like is there a genocide Are there are there millions of orcs who are just killed at the end of this? And if they're not killed, what happens to them? And and what happens, you know, over time, you know, we hear some of the basically Aragorn forgives everybody. Right. And he pardons people and he lets them go have their own lands. But like, that's such an easy uh, answer to a very complex political issue. Right. Like, what if the people who live next to the people, uh, you know, who 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 were pardoned you know doesn't agree that they should have this land it's like no we should have this land they were enemies of the crown how dare they so there's just like there's so much that could be there you know that that
0: it's all just it's all smooth here instead yeah and i think that maybe lends itself back to sort of the idea that this story was in service of of tolkien's like love for language like he he he, you know maybe he didn't want to explore those things the politics didn't interest him as much because he wanted to just use this as like a lore story to back up sort Mm -hmm. of the culture behind language and things like that so anyway let's move on (laughs) real quick i wanted to talk about aragorn and arwen coming together because again speaking of a character who wasn't really talked about that much female character um Mm -hmm. i was gonna give tolkien shit and then and then i read into the appendices like we did and um I feel like you can see there that in the appendices that he... There was a story that he wanted to tell, but he just felt that it would h- like kind of hinder the narrative because he did write it. Um, I, I just... I don't know. Where do you land on that? Yeah, I mean... Don't give him too much credit, though. He buried it in the appendices. <laughs> he did bury it in the appendices, but like, so, so how do you feel? I'm not saying he's any, you know, it's not a, he didn't do a great job of representing women in Middle Earth, obviously, yeah. but yeah. I'm just saying the fact that he wrote it means that he, you know, it was a story yeah. that, that was worth telling at least. Yeah.
1: And I think it was smart of Peter Jackson to make it a little more front and center in the film, which yeah. we can, we can get to. Um But yeah, I mean, I, I, Arwen was a character who I found completely disappointing in this, in this series. Um compared to what I was hoping for, you know what I mean? I was hoping to get more Arwen, and understand her more, and like, I had to get all the way to the appendices of the final book, before I even understood anything about Arwen really, and like, what the, what the romance was like between her and Aragorn, and why it was so important to him, and how she felt about it, and the choices she had to make, like, Almost all of that is, you know, not a part of the the the, the Prime series. And, and I would be interesting to know, interested to know the percentage of readers who never read the appendices. I bet you it's pretty high. You know what I mean? Right. I think a lot of people stop when they get to the end, you know. That's, you know, the quote-unquote end. All right, but Aragorn and Arwen are married, and everything is going well. <laughs> now we get to chapter six, which is called Many Partings. The company rides north to Rohan, then Isengard, where Gimli and Legolas head north th- through Fangorn. Aragorn returns to his kingdom, and the rest of the company heads north, where they meet Saruman and Wormtongue, who are just released from Isengard. Galadriel and Lorian elves leave over the pass to Caradhras, and the hobbits and Gandalf then arrive in Rivendell. So this is, begins an interesting part of the book, where it's like a travel log return. Like they're, it's heading back to the Shire. You can feel that's where this is headed, and a- as they go, they're lo- they 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 sort of end the storyline and leave behind a, se- a group, and yeah, the first to go is Aragorn, and the elves leave and so forth, and uh, Gimli and Legolas head off, and, and it's it's a- again sort of a, it's many partings. I guess it's right there in the title of the chapter.
0: Yeah. I like that we got to see Treebeard again. Um, yeah, as they, Treebeard. as they traveled through, and sort of Treebeard talked about how like he tortured Saruman by forcing him to listen to stories and this, like like sort of news that he. Was oh getting. yeah, that was funny. <laughs> uh, I like that a lot. I like Treebeard. Just I mean, uh, you know, I love Treebeard. But getting this little last section here was like a nice little icing on top because yep. uh, it was cool to see to again get him sort of saying. And, and, like, I guess this is, you know, this, this section here, the, the third part of our coverage can kind of be summarized in the fact that we're seeing men fully come to power. We're seeing, you know, uh, Aragorn plant the new seed of the, of the Tree of Gondor um we're seeing the ant, we're seeing treebeard as he's heading off and and I think Gandalf or someone says like maybe you'll see more entwives and 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 uh and treebeard's like no they're all gone. So it's sort of like this like but he does this, also like, say if you see any let me know. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> I forgot he says that to Mary, Mary <laughs> yeah. and Pippin which was awesome. And he, and they're way taller now too which is which is cool. And he gives him more. He gives him a little more and he says eh, have a little more of this. get a little bigger. They keep getting bigger and bigger which yeah. plays a part later. You know, as we see all these characters go away... We're seeing the elves. You know, this is kind of jumping ahead, but the, we're seeing the elves leave. We've seen that the 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 dwarves are not well off after everything that's gone on. You know, over the last few hundred years for them, mm-hmm. uh, the ants are leaving. The hobbits we're going to talk about in a second, but the but men like they're planting new trees. They're they're they sh- their city is shining with mithril. So we really are seeing like sort of the end of the third age and the rise of the age of men. Um, mm-hmm. As as everyone's prophets, Gandalf has talked about and and all of that stuff. So we learn later that Gimli uh, actually
1: is one of the uh, maybe the only dwarf to leave with the elves, and it's because right. of his friendship with Legolas. And so they they have this like epic friendship that goes on and. And, yeah, uh, I love that. But it, yeah.
0: or, or also in the appendices, it's also kind of stated maybe he went because he wanted to see Galadriel again. Yeah, exactly. We're just okay, <laughs> him and his locks of hair that he's
1: been yeah. holding on to forever. Um, yeah. There was a really funny part where uh, I think it was him and Ammer uh, are are debating whether or not uh, uh, Arwen or Galadriel is like fairer, and they're like, "Do I got to get my axe right now?" And he's yeah, like, "Well, I'll yeah. get my sword if you want to get your axe. And and then they like they're like, "I'll grant you." that that is a reasonable opinion to have. <laughs> I don't know. I th- I thought it was funny, you know. It's it's definitely a little sexist, but it was still also comical. One we got to talk about Saruman right here, right? He's left the tower, he convinced Treebeard to let him go, and Gandalf keeps saying like, "Uh, he could be up to some mischief. His the power of his voice is not to be taken lightly." And it uh, seems to have worked on you, Treebeard. He seems to have convinced you. And Saruman really feels like in many ways the most present and Um, influential villain we have like Sauron is always off screen doing things like he's in the distance he's in the shadows where Salomon like we we see him front and center a lot right and I feel like that's something that I'm going to give the books a lot of credit for is it feels like his story is way more complete whereas it felt much more like a dangling thread for me in the in the films Um, now I'll be curious because like I think I've only seen the extended version of the Lord of the Rings uh, of uh, the Return of the King maybe once Um, so I'm not even sure what all it might be in there that I'm forgetting about. Um, so I'm going to be curious to see if we get some more, some more stuff for him, but I think I'm remembering theatrical, which is like, he's just kind of in Isengard and then forgotten. And that's the end of it. (laughs) like, I don't remember much more than that. And here we get a lot more than that. And that's, uh, it begins with him and Wormtongue who are on the street and they get, once again, they get shown mercy. They're not killed. They're allowed to go off and do their own thing um and that comes back to bite our our crew here a little bit. Um what what was your thoughts on this on this whole exchange?
0: I mean, interesting to see Saruman here at the end. Um it he is a character who, you know, has been shown mercy. And like you talked about earlier, um Gandalf, everyone's shown him mercy even after all the stuff that he's all the all the vying that he had for power and sort of everything that he put in motion. Um he's still shown mercy and is still a threat. Is still dangerous, and yet he's. They're just like ah, all right, there he goes. Just know he's around. Everyone make a mental note. But yeah, and his relationship with Warm Tongue is is one that I'm sure we'll talk more about in a little bit. But yeah. he's still following Saruman, seemingly because of the power of his voice, maybe because of that the sort yeah. of influence that he still has. But yeah, seeing, seeing I I did not expect to see him here. I'll put it that way because so I don't <laughs> yeah. want to say anything about the movie.
1: Have you you now? You've read this book before, right?
0: Yeah, but it, it's been a, been a long time. Been a long time.
1: Okay, so you didn't remember everything that went down, maybe? No, I did okay. not remember everything. Yeah. Okay, Yeah, New news to me. I did not expect this at all. Um, I also want to touch on, before we leave this chapter, we reunite with Bilbo here. And I have a really fond spot in my heart for Bilbo because I grew up on The Hobbit, and he was sort of my, like, OG hobbit was Bilbo, n- way before Frodo, you know what I mean? And so it's it was kind of nice to come back to him um and he's he's old now he's he's getting sort of senile it seems like like he's forgetting things a lot he keeps falling asleep during conversations um and i thought there was an interesting moment where he asked frodo to help him finish writing his stories and i was wondering and, and i don't know if anyone can answer this but I, I i just thought about how christopher tolkien who recently passed away so rip he is you know the son of tolkien and in, in many ways sort of oversaw his legacy and oversaw the Lord of the Rings into the modern age.
0: You were talking about Peter Jackson's influence. You have to think about Christopher Christopher yeah. being able to sort of continue the legacy of his father as well yeah. um up until you know the movies came out and after. Yeah.
1: Do you think that this was that this was J.R.R. Tolkien talking to Christopher Tolkien at all here and, and and do you think he he identified with Bilbo and says I want you to carry on the story and I want you to be the sort of caretaker of it?
0: I mean I would like to think that I you know I don't know how, how the dates like how old is Tolkien at this point in his life in yeah. the in the 50s um but like the idea of of having that sort of be a parallel there would be really cool and you're talking about bilbo like i i feel the same way like i read the hobbit before read lord of the rings and so so like to see old bilbo like this and just thinking thinking about like oh he's earned it like he's earned his old age he's earned sort of getting the chance to just be like relaxed and like at one point they talk about it like bilbo's like of course i was invited to the wedding of arwen and and aragorn but i had things to do here and i'm like don't even worry about it yeah you've you've already been on your adventure just stay at home and do whatever you want to do Um, Yeah, it's nice to see him older and also to kind of go against something I was talking about earlier. He's a ring bearer who, who, you know, was still haunted by the ring. He had the ring for a long time and was still haunted by it, but seemingly affected maybe the least of anyone. Mm Because, like, he had it for, for decades, right? He had it after the events of The Hobbit and and still was able to give it away, even though he, you know, sort of snaps every time he sees it.
1: Yeah, there's kind of a chilling moment where he he talks about, like, oh, I would have liked to have seen my the ring again. And you can see that it still has this effect on him of, like, oh, it's a shame that you had to get rid of it. But I know that that's why you went, you know? And he also seems, like, so convincingly like an old man here. But, um, yeah. yeah, just the way he still has this fondness for the ring, I think, really shows sort of the, the effect it had on him. All right, chapter seven is called Homeward Bound. The hobbits and Gandalf arrive in Bree, where they stay at the Prancing Pony and are told by Butterbur that there has been trouble in Bree while they have been away. All right, so again, we keep hearing talk of trouble. And I thought it was really interesting that Gandalf has been hearing all of this and says at the end of it, "Uh, my time is done helping you and you're going to have to figure this out on your own. And he knows full well that everything he's been hearing, like he's a smart guy. He knows that this is something bad is going on in the Shire. And yet he leaves before they get there. And he's, he lets them handle it on their own. And I think it's important to note when we get to the scouring of the Shire and what, how it's, how
0: it's operating in the story here. Right. seeing Gandalf leave, leave the company of, of the fellowship. And just seeing as everybody branches off is so heartbreaking. Um, and then seeing, seeing Gandalf ride off at the end of it, um, I don't know. It's just, it feels very final. And, you yeah. know, I think before the, the fellowship actually breaks for the first time, somebody mentions, maybe maybe Gimli mentions how this may be the last time that they're all together mm-hmm. at once. And, you know, I was thinking like, what about Boromir? Because clearly it's, you guys will never be together again, but yeah. he means like the remaining the living, fellowship members. The living fellowship, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's, it is sad, like with every peeling away. And, and then it's also, there was a, there was an article I read Um, where Ted Chiang, author of uh, The Story of Your Life, which is the inspiration for Arrival, um, and and many other great pieces of sci-fi, he had an an essay recently, or an interview I think he gave, where he was talking about how in science fiction, um, if you look at stories where the end of the story marks a return to the status quo, that those stories are by definition more traditional and therefore more conservative. And if you look at stories where there is no return to status quo and instead you, you go to something new and something different that that is inherently more progressive. And I found that I was thinking about that a lot as we were entering into the final stages of this, this uh, story here and how it differs from the movies and how um, I think rightfully so this is often described as a more conservative piece of fantasy yet here we see our characters returning to their home and returning to the status quo and yet encountering difficulty getting there. And sure, by the end of it, maybe they are back. They, they, they fight their way back to the status quo. Um, but it's, there's a challenge there and there's a difference. And when they return home, they
0: find it changed. Even if they do return to status quo for a, cer- for a certain period of time, ultimately, the very, very end of the story... Uh, Things are not the same things and and I think I think there's sacrifices that have been made I think I think Tolkien is smart to lean on the fact that like there were sacrifices made and things do change Um, And I think maybe you know that that to me speaks to like going away to war and then coming back and feeling everything changed and sort of you being changed yourself And we'll talk about that when we talk about Frodo and sort of dealing with how he deals with the Shire Yeah Chapter 8 is the scouring of the Shire. Like I said,
1: Gandalf leaves. It was nice to be back at the Prancing Pony. Uh, you know, I love a good fantasy inn, and Prancing Pony <laughs> is probably the most famous, you know, freaking inn in all of fantasy. So it was cool yeah. to be back there. Um, and then and then I think it's a fitting place to be sort of the final place where then Gandalf leaves shortly thereafter. Um, and we leave Bree, and we're back finally in the Shire, and it's just the four hobbits. It's Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin, right? And they come in, and I love there's this moment where they realize that, like, They haven't been seeing any of this trouble that they keep hearing about, and they realize that it's because they're wearing armor and they have magic swords, and they're like, you know, they're level twenty, yeah, (laughs) in in D and D parlance. And they're like, we're like, we're some badasses right now, and no one's gonna fuck with us, and that's why. Not to mention, Merry and Pippin are like
0: massive for hobbits. They're like six
1: foot tall now. (laughs) They're not, but they're they're getting taller and taller. They're large, yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. Anyway, I I I, I thought that moment was funny, Um, but. I think it's also let's get into the Scouring of Shire, then I'll touch in on. It. So chapter eight is called "The Scouring of the Shire." This is a very famous chapter. Does not appear in you know this this event doesn't happen in in the in the films. So let's let's really dig into it here. The hobbits arrive in the Shire to find it has been taken over by the chief or Sharky at Bag End. The Battle of the Bywater happens, and the hobbits find Saruman and Wormtongue are at Bag End posing as Sharky. Wormtongue then kills Saruman and is killed himself by Hobbit archers. All right, so that's everything that happens at the Scouring of the Shire. Um, this is something I kind of knew was coming, but I thought, for whatever reason, that there was like orcs or something that had invaded the Shire. Um, but it actually seems to be more like men and just some like ruffians and thugs right. that were employed by by Saruman. So it is sort of forces of of you know the Dark Lord, but. Um, yeah, it it was different than I thought it was going to be, and I'm not I'm not sure where I got the sort of wrong idea, but um, Saruman is at the head of it all, and he is Sharky, which actually I will admit I didn't realize it was going to be him. Um, yeah. I was sort of
0: surprised by that. So all all of this like Scouring of the Shire stuff is interesting because you know very clearly I think it's to show the growth of our uh, the growth of our characters. You know these were like they were young kids in the Shire when they left, and you know the goings on of the Shire probably seemed big to them at that point. And now they come back and sort of like seeing it, seeing that like a lot of the, a lot of the hobbits won't fight back because they don't want to die and this and that. And like seeing all the sacrifice that they've seen, um, I think leads to them being like Pippin like leads the battle, right? Yeah. And like, like oh, yeah. a lot of them are, have huge roles to play here and, and like Frodo's running around trying to stop people from, from killing people and yeah. helping people. Frodo's and, done fighting, man. He's,
1: yeah. he's, he's like, I don't want to see any more killing if I, if I don't have to.
0: But so to think of the men who co- who come into the area, it's just like they've, you know, they've now heard of this like sort of easygoing paradise where they can just go in and take control of all these smaller people mm-hmm. and, and just live the high life and have them be basically slaves and do whatever they want and take all of their, take all of their resources and everything. Um, and yeah, it's crazy that that hadn't happened before, right? It's yeah. crazy that like, like the orcs hadn't rolled in, like you said, or like that, that any forces that had ever really touched the Shire, but maybe they did. Maybe I just didn't get that backstory. Yeah. Um, and so I want to I think rightfully so
1: the the Lord of the Rings described as like a, a as an example of Joseph Campbell's uh, hero's journey. Right. And one of the yeah. key features of the hero's journey is that you return home changed. And we're seeing that here. Like this is them returning home changed by their experiences. And I want to give Tolkien credit here because I really like this that I like that even though, you, you know, the people who didn't leave home might look at them and say like, oh, I barely recognize you, you, you know, you've been going around with all these fancy folk and you've been off with all these other people that we don't trust. And yet there's a strength that they have earned through that, right? And you, they wouldn't be able to handle the situation here if they hadn't been through that. And they hadn't learned from all these people that they've that they've met and didn't have the experiences of leaving home. And so to me, it's really saying something about like, you know, needing to get out of your comfort zone and go experience life and go experience other cultures and go experience other things and, and learn from it. And then even if you do return home, which not everyone does, you know, we could talk about how like Frodo ends up leaving. Um, but even if you do return home that like you can take those experiences with you and there'll be a strength for you. Um, right. and, and so I like that part of it too, right? And and that that strength is is on display here when we get the you know the 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 battle the and we get uh, the you know the the final interaction with Sharky, um, aka Saurman,
0: who I think Sharky is a really funny freaking name for him to have chosen for himself. I think I'm gonna exclusively refer to him as Sharky from now on. Anytime <laughs> I'm talking about like oh the forces of Sharky,
1: I wanted to give Tolkien credit there because I feel like I've been giving him a lot of shit for sort of the 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 political standpoint of this book. And I, I don't want to reduce it to a political sort of binary of like, either it is conservative or it is not. And you know what I mean? And like, I think there is elements of it that can be viewed either way. And, um, and also not to say that one is good and one is bad. You know what I mean? Like, I I think it's more complicated than that. Just like anything the political sc- spectrum is very complicated. I know we live in a country where it is not <laughs> right now. It is incredibly polarized. Um, But this is a series that, um, I don't think fits necessarily neatly in one or the other. Um, and and um, I don't know what else to say other
0: than, than I think it's more complicated than that. Yeah, so so what did you think of The Scouring of the Shire? Like, did you, as, as an event within the story? So, I liked it. So, so it's, it,
1: it, it feels weird pacing-wise, um, right. but I think it fits the series that is written. And that is a series where we spent a ton of time in the Shire at the beginning of the books, right? We spent years, we spent all this time exploring the, the 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 situation in the Shire. You know, like we talked about, we kind of made jokes about how, like, oh, this ring is really dangerous and it has to be taken immediately. Alright, 15 years pass, 20 years passed. You right. know, and we were kind of joking about that. And, and that book and that beginning needs, I think, or earns this ending. And that's where, like, we've come all the way back around and now the ending of the Shire story gets a chapter to be explored, right? And, and, uh, that's what I think the scouring of the Shire is. And it works for these books. Um, I don't think that it would have worked in the films and we can get to that when we get to the movies. Um, I, I think it was smart to leave it out. Um, but, but here I think it does work. And I think that it does feel kind of like an extra ending, which I can be, which is kind of surprising. Um, but that's okay. And, and, and right. books, I think, uh, get a little more leeway with their structure, um, and I think that, that it is sort of a second ending
0: here that we get. He has so many endings within the story. And yet yeah. there's so many extra stories that he could have added in that also could have felt like, you know, endings and, and sort of more context and all of this. So the things he decided to cut and the things he decided to leave within his lore um, is, I don't know, it's interesting. Like, I, I understand the importance of, of sort of this final sort of conflict here. For the the growth of the hobbits, and also to show Fro- Frodo so not not being able to like click back in to the Shire life, not being able yeah. to to you know revert back. Clearly, I think he has some PTSD. I think he's got like yeah you know he's he's thinking about his injuries. He's he's like you know he'll be sick one day and and fine the next day, and um, ultimately I guess it's in the next next chapter. But ultimately deciding to to leave. Oh, one thing, old Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Old Tom Bombadillo. Gandalf goes to meet with him. Yeah. At the very end of the story here. But he doesn't so. make an
1: appearance though. He no, stays he off he stays off.
0: But I mean, just like speaking of wild characters that were cut from the uh the movies, Tom Bombadillo continues to be this sort of I don't know, otherworldly and, and learning more about the Valar and and like sort of the, the one god above all within the the Lord of the Rings, um, or just at least like learning more about that, um, makes me think like where does tom bombadil fit within all that he seems like a nature being you know he seems like something that's just all like he seems like a god he could be one of the valar i don't know
1: yeah he does feel like a god to me i agree um yeah i don't know man that's stuff that that i i don't feel qualified i feel like i have to like really dig into the silmarillion or something to like really know how to talk about tom bombadil and his role um what about what about gandalf and and him going to
0: talk to him what does that mean Right. I don't know. Maybe that's his source, right? Maybe he's always been getting all his information from Tom Bombadil all written out. And then he's like, all right.
1: <laughs> no, and didn't he say, like, I wasn't prepared to talk to him before, but, like, now I am. I want to have a really deep conversation
0: I think with him so. or something. Yeah, I yeah. think so. And I think he also, like, doesn't he report back and say, like, yeah, he he uh, was not interested in anything that we had going on? No, I think he's theory. I, I don't know that we talked to Gandalf again after that, but I think it was more like he, that was
1: his theory. He's like, I don't think he's going to have cared much about Yeah, what happened. that's probably what it was. Yeah. Which I'm like, really? Oh, okay. I don't know. Maybe. Tom Bombadil is a a bizarre character. (laughs) Just leave it at that. Um, I want to talk about the final bit here with Saruman and Wormtongue because once again, we see Mercy, right? We see Frodo saying, don't kill him, don't kill him, don't kill him. And yet, we know that he's this reprehensible character, and he he sort of through his own evil gets himself killed, right? Like, he's been twisting Wormtongue, he's been bullying Wormtongue, and finally Wormtongue Stabs him, and then Wormtongue himself gets shot to death by the hobbits um, before Frodo can stop them. And again, it, to me, this 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 feels like some sort of divine justice that um, I don't know that I love the message here. It seems to be very much like you like don't you don't have to get your hands dirty because karma will will come in and take care of it. You know what I
0: mean? Like don't worry about it. Karma is gonna take care of it right which which comes back to what i was talking about before it's it's great to be idealistic but like you're going to get taken advantage of you can you can think that like oh karma will take care of it but in the meantime like you know th- whoever wants to do evil is doing the evil they mm-hmm. want to do so it's a kind of yeah. like a double edged sword this is the
1: polar opposite of game of thrones like this is the fundamental difference in game of thrones where characters who karma should punish karma does not punish
0: <laughs> right like it, and characters it, who have good karma don't like get yeah. get you know awful things done to them exactly um and it just it felt weird to me to to
1: to repeatedly be giving giving Sar- saruman a pass and then yet frodo is able to keep his hands clean and and our characters are able to keep their hands clean and and stick to their principles and yet still justice is served you know what i mean right. like it's very it's very convenient Right. Um, and it, it, not one of my favorite b- bits but that's just personally I think it it, it, it is in keeping with the uh, philosophy of the Lord of the Rings and what has been presented it's consistent I just don't personally love this uh, love this worldview or the way that it works in the plot here even yeah alright chapter 9 the Grey Havens so several years pass spent cleaning up the Shire Sam and Frodo meet the elves and Bilbo traveling west through the Shire They travel to the Grey Havens, where they meet Gandalf, and Merry and Pippin arrive. Frodo, Bilbo, and Gandalf and the elves all sail to the west, and Sam returns to Rose and their daughter, Eleanor, at Bag End.
0: And that is the end. Okay, so let's let's get into this final chapter here. I mean I think this is the one that's that's really full of mystery for for a lot of people that that want to know like what takes place after the events of Lord of the Rings like why are they going west what is in the west and we get yeah. like this glimpse of something this, this like seeming paradise is it heaven is it you know is an allegory yeah. for heaven is it um, the ending of suffering is it you know that's what it that's what it kind of seems like it's what at the same like, time right? right but at the same time it's really sad for the people who stay behind so mm-hmm. you know seeing Sam have this like you know, Sam and, and Frodo finally had this like glorious time together. They had the most bountiful summers together in in the Shire, and sh- uh, Sam is having children. And every once in a while, Frodo seems weird, but but ultimately, like they live near each other. Sam is happy because he's married and Sam has a moves kid. in and b- moves into back end with Rosie, right? Yeah, yeah. And so like it, that's like the idyllic sort of ending, right? That's that's the ending that that everybody's hoping for if you like that kind of ending. Uh, but, but we have Frodo who's kind of, you know, he's not the same. And I think Arwen uh, offers him long, long before this, the, the, uh, like her spot on the, on the boat on, on the way West. Mm. So this is his chance to take it. Uh, and, and it was, it's crazy because Sam doesn't know as they're heading to the, as they're heading out to the dock, uh, until Bilbo mentions that they're heading out. And then I think Frodo, Frodo says he is as well um and it's heartbreaking and like when i watch this scene in the movie too it's it's also heartbreaking it's uh it's the end of it all and and you know seemingly saying goodbye is a very finite goodbye you know it's like this is the death of these characters this is the death of and just thinking of you know how you feel about death and whether they're going to a great place or not they're leaving you behind or you're leaving them behind so yeah it's pretty it's pretty emotional stuff
1: frodo finishes the story he finishes bilbo's story and that like, seems like one of the last things he really wanted to do. He writes it, down, he writes it all down. And once he's done that, it feels like he, he doesn't feel like he has anything left to give and he has anything left to do in this world. And it does feel like a, you know, symbolic death in, in a sense. But in a way, it's, you're not supposed to treat it like a death. You're supposed to treat it like they're going off to another realm to live just, I guess, happy lives. Right, but they're um, not coming back. But they're not coming back and we don't hear anything about this world. So it seems like it seems like a heaven, right? It seems like a like an afterlife. Yeah. And um, we get this final bit where Mary and Pippin come with Sam and they they accompany him back and they're sad, but they're also sort of glad that they're together at the end here. And um, yeah, I thought that was a that was a moving bit. And, um, I, I will, I, I like when Gandalf says, I will not say do not weep for not all tears are an evil. Um, I think it's Gandalf who says that, right? I think so, And, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's, again, one of many great quotes in this book, in this series. And, um, I like that we end with Sam, who, who, uh, is sort of our, one of our main characters by the end here. And, um he is returning home and the final the final line of the series is well i'm back he said and that's the end of the, that's the end of
0: the books yeah when i read that i was like i was like god damn it tolkien you son of a bitch you you did it what a what a way to end the, the story like just that last line yeah um is, and, is and, really good
1: and personally for me like i just moved back into my home after being out for three months um we're all reading this so i thought that, that was quite appropriate right like it feels very final and it's like a back back in my home and I've, you know,
0: been through all this crazy shit, but I'm back now. And, and yeah. And you know, like, like you were saying before this, this could seem sort of like the conservative back to, back to the status quo seemingly for almost all the characters. And even though it's like the world's completely turned upside down, Sam is back. So maybe it's the more conservative end for him. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how these we've talked about on the podcast before, but it's crazy how these stories mirror a lot of the things, or you can at least like sort of ha- you can sort of put them up against your own life. And so it sort of mirrors the things that we're doing. Um, and so for, for you to get back in the, the get back line, I, I like, yeah. I understand why, why it's, it's like kind of haunting, but at the same yeah. time, it's nice. Cause it's, it's like, you can always well, it's comforting, relate. Right. Yeah. And, and I return to the status quo and
1: the, and I maybe should have explored this a little bit more when Ted Chiang was talking about it. And the reason that's viewed that way is because the status quo is only comforting to those who benefit from it. Right. Right. Um and if you're if you don't benefit from the status quo, then a return to the status quo
0: is not a comforting <laughs> <Right>. ending. <laughs> you know, clearly. Um but yeah, if you're I, like I, part I, of a revolution and then and then everything returns to the status quo, that means that you lost and it's not great for you. You failed. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um but but on the other hand, um everybody has you know i mean not everybody but everybody wants to have a home and every and many people have one and um hopefully your home is a place where you find comfort and if that's the if that's the case then there everybody can sort of um understand that feeling of like coming back to safety and coming back to feeling like you know you've gone through a journey yet now you can rest and um i think that's a comforting place to end here and i think that in a time like now where there's a lot of uncertainty in the world um it's just nice to feel that way and um, that's one of the things that i love about watching the movies is i feel like we've talked about especially in fellowship like really captures that homey feel and um we return to it here at the end um and it, it i don't know it feels right for me and it feels right for this series but yeah. we've got to get into these appendices man <laughs> we've got to let's do it um, real quick let's let's blast through them any just just hit me with anything that you found was really interesting for one one for me just i was hit right off the bat amana marth um is the name of a metal band and apparently it also means mount doom which i found out from reading the appendices
0: <laughs> so so they they got their name from tolkien then right yeah it must have been yeah because yeah, that means yeah. mount doom that's awesome that's super anyway cool. so random things you find reading the appendices oh my gosh there's so much i mean um i really liked learning about like i said before I, I feel like i've said a lot of what i really enjoyed about it but it's like anything to do with the first age the second age um s- sort of hearing about you know the sauron and like what what it was like before what it was like for sauron before he was any sort of like evil you know magic hitler as we talked about before yeah. uh and like you know Morgoth and sort of the well the it, how he was what like about a, angmar right yeah yeah. yeah, and the Witch
1: King, like, we, this is, we get a lot of Witch King stuff, and we hear that, like, he caused a lot of havoc and was, like, the leader of all these, you know, all these wars, and, and um, a lot of the stuff that happened in ages previous where it seems like the, the Witch King was a really important figure in a, in a lot of this stuff, and we hear about his power, and, and he had, he was, you know, he had one of the rings, and um, or he ended up getting one of the rings. I don't remember at all, but it was interesting. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of that stuff and and it it showed like how important a figure he was in like the previous age.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because it's kind of like the, the ghosts of the, or the spirits of the path of the path of the dead in the way that like, it's sort of things from the past coming to play a part. Like this is just a, like this is a King of old who's like affecting the present.
1: Well, we hear about the wars that happened at the Barrow Downs and, right. and all this stuff, like these areas we've been to, and there, at Weathertop, there was this like really big battle uh, mm-hmm. with with um, the Aragorn, what is the Aragorn people? <laughs> Numenor? No, the, the, oh, the Dunedain. The Dunedain, the Dunedain, yeah. I think there's like a big battle at Weathertop, right? And like all this stuff, and it's like, if I had known all of this, and I would have had more historical context to all these areas, but I guess it, it kind of works in a way that you don't know it all, too um so it was just cool to get to get some of these background stories and a lot of it if it's helped to me like i I finally realized what he was doing essentially he would go back to like way back for a section and then he would work all his way to the present and then you'd get a little bit of what happens after um so you'd often hear about like what happened with say rohan and, and 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 eomir as king and 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 how he how he operated and or you hear about like Gimli going with Legolas and
0: we get tons of
1: Aragorn too well I was gonna say one of the biggest ones is the story of Arwen and Aragorn right and we get a lot of like what happened
0: in the past all the way leading up to what happened after so yeah you want to talk about them at all well, yeah, the the past, like like learning about how you know Elrond was how against he was, uh, how much he was against Aragorn as a young when he was young. Well, so so Aragon, Aragorn's
1: father it was a Dunedain who was killed, and then he went to right. live with with Elrond, and then while right. he was
0: there, he like became smitten with Arwen. Exactly, and so Elrond, and then Elrond was not about that; he hated it. And clearly, even even through the through <laughs> well, the he book. even said like sh- you would have to be the king of
1: both Gondor and Anor to be worthy of her, right? right. So that's uh, the whole
0: reason that that Aragorn did it, I guess. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's a it's a winding story, and and to not have this in the actual text is, you know, yeah. I, I, do I think it hurts Aragorn and, and Arwen a little bit? Yes, but at the same time, I think it ho- it hurts their romance. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. But think about, I don't know. Do you think it fits in the story? You think you can just plop it in somewhere and have it be like a flashback or No, you don't plop it in, you weave it in. You weave it in. <laughs> I <Weave> just mean <laughs> <laughs> But so 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 if you do weave it in, do you think do you think that a lot of it would need to be cut from what we just read in the appendices? You think it's you yeah. know I think yeah. you take it out of the appendices and you weave it in and then you have a little bit more love in
1: your in your story about swords and people on yeah, you know, horseback. I think Tolkien
0: didn't want that. You know, for better or for worse. That's what that's what he didn't want it. And are there really flashbacks in in his sort of story? It was kind of propelled forward constantly only in the present, right? Yeah. Maybe there were, maybe, I guess technically there's, if you think of it as like a flashback, if we're, you know. There was like, flashbacks and flash forwards throughout this book.
1: Uh, there would be times where we'd get history or we'd get even like a, in days to come, they would say this, you know, and like, right. so time That's was true, a little yeah. loose. I think it could have been done. He just didn't want to. He didn't, he didn't want it to be part of the main story. Um, and you know what I mean? Some people would like that. Um I for one think that we could have gotten a little bit more of this in the actual book itself but
0: what did you think about all the sections with uh, the Durrance folk? Oh, about the dwarves? Right, yeah.
1: Yeah, Uh, that was fun. And honestly, I think uh, I was like, oh, this is some of the stuff that we get in some of the Hobbit films. Yeah, Um, because we got a lot more of like Thor Thor and Oakenshield and like Mm -hmm. how he got the name of Oakenshield and the name of some of the like orc leaders that he slew. I did like the the discussion of this like underground war between the orcs and the bearded folk that that no one else knew about um, that, that raged for many, many years. We learn about what happened with yeah. Moria
0: before when the fellowship enter Moria and, and you know Gimli sees what happened to the to the dwarves in Moria for the first time. Yeah. And then it's also nice to see you know, like all of the things leading up to the Hobbit are in the appendices there, and then basically nearing the end, we learn about Smog is like the you know the greatest of the golden dragons, and he goes in and, and takes takes uh, advantage of or like basically kills all the dwarves in order to get their, their gold and everything. They've dug too deep because of their greed, and then ultimately at the end it's like and that is explored in another in another story, basically. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and
0: I also kind of recontextualizes stuff. And I want to
1: know: Do you think this is retconning, where it kind of says that like Gandalf recognized what sort of a weapon smog would be in the in the you know the hands of Sauron, um, and so it was like they had to take care of it before he could like use him. Probably. Um. And that makes sense, but it feels a little bit like retconning to me because I'm like, I don't think that was why Gandalf did it originally.
0: I don't think he knew. About Right, when going he on, first yeah. wrote The Hobbit, he probably didn't have all the information, so yeah, probably a little bit, but we also don't know, like, he the way he wrote the story was, like, clearly, you know, he's covering millennia, and he's, like, all over the place, so who knows well, what he wrote Well, and let's take it at and- face
1: value, it's an interesting thought, right? Like, if yeah. Smog
0: was still around, would he have served... Sauron, or would he
1: have been too proud? Like, how would that have worked? It seems like he he could have been, and if he had been, can you imagine fucking smog at the head of the you know, the armies? Sauron, like that would have yeah. been a game changer, you know. So in that sense, like Bilbo's journey is incredibly important, and in that he was able to take that you know figure off. I. I, I want to know more about dragons in Middle Earth. Yeah. Um. It doesn't seem like Smog is the only dragon yet. No. Where are all the dragons? You know what I mean? Like, why well, they we talked about in the appendices. Others? They
0: said like most of them were killed off. Um, yeah. I guess. Yeah.
1: Was Smog the last living dragon? I don't know. I I would have liked to know more about the dragons. So, I, I mean, that's what a lot of there's uh, there's a lot of room. You know. I guess that's one thing I'll give Tolkien credit for. Even with all the histories he gave, he gave a lot of room and a lot of space for other fantasy to explore other stories that could
0: fit in a fantasy world like this. Mm. I think, you know, I think he explored everything he possibly could in a lifetime. And what's crazy is like just to have created something that has all these gaps that could still be filled in. And like, I, I think a lot of the, I don't, I don't really know who's controlling the Tolkien estate at this point you know, clearly his family, I think in some capacity, yeah. but like there are still games and there are still books that are coming out that are like using manuscripts. And sure. I don't know the games as much, but definitely the books are using manuscripts and sort of like Silmarillion and, and some of the, some of this, uh, appendices stuff. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's cool to see that like maybe his legacy can be continued through other people telling his stories, but at the same time, like, how do we feel about somebody not Tolkien kind of fully realizing these stories? I mean,
1: I guess I'm fine with it, but I'm sort of in the camp of like, I feel like the Lord of the Rings has had many moments to be the thing to be talked about, yet I feel that it is more a bit of classic literature at this point. Um, right. And I think as someone, and, you know, I have a vested interest in in, in you know, modern fantasy, but. I do uh, lament the fact that there are many fa- readers of fantasy who their, you know, their their taste in fantasy begins and ends with Tolkien. Right. And yeah. that is sort of the, it's kind of like, we talked about this a little bit, I think, with like Stephen King and horror. Like there are many readers of horror who their, their taste in horror begins with Carrie and ends with, you know, whatever the latest book is that Stephen King has put out. And like, that's all the horror they read and that's the, all the horror they're interested in. And... I think both of those are very sort of closed off. Um, and, you know, at least Stephen King is a living author. So, you know, I'll give you some credit for that. But like Tolkien ha- is not and hasn't been for a while. So it's sad to think that there are a lot of people out there who like this is the end all be all fantasy for them and they don't want to read anything else and they don't think anything else is, uh, you know, of value that wasn't right. written.
0: It comes back to what I was talking about before. I think it's like if you, if you don't diversify and you don't seek other stories, then you're closing. Like you said, you're closing yourself off and there's so many other opportunities out there for you to experience. Um, yeah so like I I agree like there's so much to explore with Middle Earth if you want to you can go read it constantly and learn something new and all his manuscripts and all that stuff is there but yeah like any modern fantasy is still growing and learning from from Tolkien and standing on the shoulders of Tolkien and I you know I think some days or not there, there's a lot of fantasy that's being written
1: it, purposely delving into other backgrounds and not drawing from the West and saying, you know, like you look at some, uh, books like The Poppy War or just, you know, Jade City, who you've talked about, like they take from completely different, you know, histories and from authors who've never read Tolkien don't want to read Tolkien. And that's fine.
0: Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I think to, to like you said, to close yourself off to to these stories is is doing yourself a disservice because there are so many voices and there's so many adventures that you could never have in, in Middle Earth that that you could be experiencing. And I think think one day, you know, somebody will write something greater than than Lord of the Rings. Like it, it's like bound to happen. The you know, if time Maybe it is infinite, has been. if exactly <laughs> if time is infinite, then like who knows what's gonna happen? And I think. I think to to forever think Lord of the Rings is the best thing and to continue to read it over and over is sort of what I was talking about before, the dangerous side of fandom. Sure.
1: You know, and I, I do also want to bring it back though. Like, I I am a fan of the Lord of the Rings. I am a fan of those films. And I liked the series. And as a fantasy fan, I like that this, this was the foundation in many ways of Dungeons and Dragons, which is a game I love. Um, which is itself such an important, you know, piece of uh, media and an important thing in our society that has led to so many other games and so like all of our video games that were based off of it, and card games and things that grew out of Dungeons and Dragons, which grew itself grew out of The Lord of the Rings. So I recognize how deep the roots go, how big the shadow is, and how important um, this is in fantasy. And I also don't want to seem like I'm I'm discounting that. Um, so. I guess I, you know, like it seems like I'm straddling the fence here, and that's how I really feel. Like I, I am of two minds about it. I recognize it, what it is. I like that it can be comforting in a time like now, and I I see how historically important it is. Yet I also see the dangers inherent in in becoming obsessed with it and and not seeing any other things, um, having value and feeling like this is the end all be all. I think that that is not. I I don't ascribe to that viewpoint, and I don't think. Um, that is a healthy way to look at it in a way that is going to open yourself. You're, you're Like you said, you're going to close yourself off to um, other stories and other pieces of fantasy out there if you do that too much. I don't know. I think I'm saying the same things over and over again. So I'm probably rambling. Um, do you have anything else to add about this? Do you want to give your takes here at the end
0: of all things, Sam? I mean, James. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, it, there's no denying that I'm a massive fan of this series. Um, yeah it's it's meant so much to me for such a long time um to to really dig into it like this is i think part of what the podcast is about and you know any criticism is is hopefully just to show you know the potential of what stories can be and i think this this is a story that forever will be very important um and yeah, I I mean, I mean, it just it's so affecting to me and it and it means so much and and I honestly am probably pretty biased about it at this point yeah. because it's meant so much to me. Um but as long I think as long as even if you are biased like I am, I think it's it as long as you're open to new experiences and open to new stories and things like that, that's that's what's important. Right. All right. Well, I want to leave a little bit of uh, a little bit of meat left on the bone for next week when we're
1: getting into these films and we'll truly be putting the cap on our Lord of the Rings coverage. We have one more episode. We hope you join us for Peter Jackson's epic four and a half hour extended cut. We're going to be watching something crazy like that. Almost five hours. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know how long it is, but, you know, honestly, I'm looking forward to it. And and uh, maybe we'll even maybe I'll even watch Fellowship and Two Towers again if I have time. But like we said earlier, we are going to be discussing uh, the biopic Tolkien Uh, this week. We're going to probably record that and put it out soon. Um, Look for that. If you are a patron, if you want to find out how to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash ink to film. You can financially support us with as little as one dollar a month. Um, Get access to different things. We have different tiers on there. Take a look at it if you're curious about that. Um, Any uh, financial help at this time
0: is greatly appreciated. And make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all those at InkToFilm. And join our Council of Inklings. It's a actually, speaking of which, Council of Inklings, if you go all the way back to our fellowship <laughs> yeah. episode, comes from the Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, so join the Council of Inklings. Uh, we post polls. We post news. We post all kinds of stuff in there. Anything we see that's adaptation adjacent or maybe a potential project in the future, uh, check that out. Absolutely. And if you liked this episode,
1: please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. Or if you happen to be listening to this on YouTube, like the video, subscribe to the channel. The first time I'm going to say that. Um, But our YouTube channel has been doing decent of late and uh, I would like to continue to, to have it grow. So absolutely subscribe. Make sure you do that and give us a like. Thank you to
0: Music Archive for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. We'll be back next week for the final film. Uh, But until next time, thanks for listening.